0: Welcome to another episode of Shout for Libraries, the radio program where students from the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Alberta bring forward some of the discussions and research that are going on behind the scenes in our classrooms and our workplaces. If you've listened to the last two episodes, you'll know that two of our number, Maya and Alessa, conducted an in depth two part interview following up on the research done by Dr. Danielle Allard, Angela Liu, and Dr. Tammy Oliphant into sexual harassment in library settings perpetrated by patrons. We'd previously done a piece on this research way back in 2018 during season two. Since then, study has progressed significantly, netting a wealth of information that the three researchers are currently parsing. To listen to these previous episodes or any other past episode, check out the Shout for Libraries page on Transistor.fm or wherever you find your podcasts. Given what we are learning about from this important study, the Shout for Libraries team thought we'd follow up that interview by turning to an expert. This month, Paula interviews Sam Pearson, the director of the University of Alberta Sexual Assault Centre, about what libraries can do with this information and what steps we can take next. As with the last two episodes, the content herein deals with sexual harassment and harm, which is a difficult and heavy topic and often upsetting or triggering. So we encourage you to take care of yourself and do what you need to feel safe, whether that means listening in a different time and place or seeking support. Further resources include the General Info Line at 211, the University of Alberta Sexual Assault Center at 780-492-9771, the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton at 780-423, Or the Alberta one line for sexual violence at 186-403-8000.
1: As you're probably already aware, patron perpetrated sexual harassment uh, refers to the sexual harassment of library workers by patrons. So people who are being harassed by the very people that they're trying to serve. if someone is being harassed in the workplace what are some steps that they can take to get help and and what resources are available
2: so i think um a big part of both preventing and responding to sexual harassment in our community is really shifting the culture around sexual violence so Um, you know, as much as possible, making it clear that this sort of behavior goes against like the values of the organization and and the space and also letting folks know it's okay to talk about their experiences and that they'll actually be supported if and when they, they come forward. So I think it's difficult to say, you know, what can folks who've had this experience do to to get help when organizations and institutions, I think, have the the first responsibility to curb the behavior um, and create safer spaces with, like, robust accountability protocols um, that are transparent and easy to engage uh, when this sort of violence happens. Like, that's the the first step, I think, really, is, is making sure that, you know, we're not just telling folks that they should reach out for support and, and you know talk to their supervisors um, about you know the, the violence that they're experiencing um, without knowing that there's like a, a comprehensive mechanism with which these disclosures or complaints are, are going to be met respectfully and, and in a timely manner and you know without fear of reprisal um for having come forward with, with that experience. So I think that infrastructure really needs to be in place first. Um, and I think, you know, um that that is something that often gets missed in, in the conversation. Um, I think outside of of immediate organizations um, or workplaces, which I think unfortunately are often quite ill-prepared or, or not equipped to handle disclosures or complaints. I can't speak to the state of, of libraries specifically, and that's not where I work, but I know even at, you know, the university, which has a service like ours and, and several positions um, who sort of think about this issue full time, um, the, you know, the processes that we have are very opaque and and, um, difficult to access and still at the end of the day, end up silencing folks who are seeking support and, and, um, you know, justice or or accountability. Um, So outside of that, I think there are community resources like um, the U of A Sexual Assault Center uh, here in Edmonton or the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton itself. Um, that provide like free, confidential, and anonymous support and psychological services to folks who've been impacted by this kind of harm. Uh, and so, folks should feel, I think, empowered to, um, you know, even just sort out their thoughts and and you know work through how they might define what happened to them. Um, you know, outside of that organization, and, and there are folks who are here to, and trained and, and will listen. Um, and I also think to to anyone who is listening um, and has had an experience themselves, it's important to know and, and internalize that what happened wasn't your fault. It's not treatment that you deserved and you have a right to get the support you need when you're inevitably feeling impacted by this kind of harm uh, because that can be a huge barrier. That's why I think most folks don't um, you know, say anything or seek further support is because our society likes to dismiss sexual harassment as like just a joke or, you know it's really just a compliment you should be uh, flattered that you get that sort of attention um, and so it's important i think when we're talking about sexual harassment to really recognize the tangible impacts um, that it can have on a person's physical and then psychological safety um, so that folks don't feel like you know they're making too big a deal out of it or you know that they're not entitled to the support that they need
1: what are steps that libraries can take to protect their workers from patron perpetrated sexual harassment
2: yeah i think that's really key like i I mentioned before i think all organizations and institutions have a responsibility to take active steps to prevent and address sexual violence including sexual harassment Uh, for me this really comes back to establishing and sort of espousing some, some pro-social values that emphasize the, the humanity and, and well-being of both employees and patrons. So I think it's not enough to say, you know, have a poster that um, says something like zero tolerance for sexual harassment in this space, uh, but then on the flip side to treat patrons with hostility when they're using You know, libraries is like a public space to meet their basic needs like shelter or finding community, uh, a place to sleep. Uh, So this is, you know, not to say that people are responsible for their housing behavior they are subjected to when they're simply just enforcing institutional policies. But I think the institution itself has to be more intentional about the environment it's setting up. I think fundamentally it's it's hypocritical to say that employees are not to be treated disrespectfully, but then you know, to treat patrons with disrespect because policies are set up to basically further criminalize folks experiencing poverty and or like houselessness, right? That doesn't um quite compute. And I think that can create conditions where um you know further harassment or, or violence might happen, right? We, our policies sometimes seek um or not actively seek, but inadvertently escalate uh, situations. And then it's the the employees who are the ones who are left to pick up the pieces and and also um, reckon with the violence that they've been subjected to. So I think libraries can do uh, more to create a culture where um, other staff also feel comfortable disrupting sexual violence when it's happening around them. Uh, This starts with sort of ensuring that everyone you know in the institution understands what constitutes sexual harassment and other forms of violence and then moving to more specific education on the different kinds of like interventions that are possible and and also encouraging folks to practice accountability in their own lives too Um, so I think there are a lot of interventions beyond just like directly intervening in a situation where um, sexual harassment is happening which I think sometimes can put everyone else at further risk of harm or like I said sort of escalate the the situation um so you can do things like distract the other person by inserting yourself into the narrative but for like a seemingly you know unrelated reason um so just creating like a, a distraction Uh, you can grab another staff to help de-escalate the behaviors we talk about this like delegating the the response to to someone else who maybe has more power or expertise um, or if there's just safety in numbers and sometimes even just checking in with the person who experienced the harm or you know chatting with the person who caused it after after the fact can be really tremendously helpful Um, and I think you know, regardless of the intervention that's chosen, um, the message is that this behavior is inappropriate and shouldn't be allowed to continue or, you know, it needs to be addressed in, in some way. It's not OK for it to just go um, without sort of recognition. Um, and so I think that sort of basic training um, is something that, you know, additionally, libraries can, can provide to its staff, I think, to help curb this issue that's coming up.
1: That's very much related to my next question about, like, specifically what what kind of training, what kind of programs do you think should be available to library workers concerning sexual violence and sexual harassment?
2: Yeah, so what I would have just mentioned previously, um, you know, direct interventions, distract interventions, delegate and delay. Um, All of those are what we would call the four Ds of bystander intervention, Uh, and I think training on that topic, uh, and like I said, including how to identify sexual violence and how to practice accountability in our own lives, uh, when we act in ways that are maybe, you know, not in alignment with our personal values or institutional values. Um, These are key topics that everyone in our communities should be educated on. And in Edmonton services, like the one that I work at, the U of A Sexual Assault Center um, or the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, we provide this kind of training to to all sorts of organizations who are looking to better equip their, their staff to address this kind of violence.
1: And of course, you know, like all social issues, social issues don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, what are you know, like overarching, more systemic kinds of issues that coincide and coexist with sexual harassment and and sexual violence that that need to be addressed, particularly in a library setting, but also in just in general.
2: Yeah, and so I mean, we would think about um, sexual harassment often as being. know form of gender-based violence and and so i think that sort of analysis is top of mind for lots of folks so you know it's it's a form of violence that's usually disproportionately um aimed at and, and impacts folks who you know identify as as female or if i'm presenting um and we can understand that sort of analysis within a binary because i think we've been presented with that understanding for so long um, and that's a great place to to start but like you you acknowledge with your question um you know there, there are a lot of different intersections of, of being that come into play when um we think about sexual harassment right and so i think we have a lot of really amazing foundational black feminist thinkers um in this case specifically dr kimberly Crenshaw, um who you know, coined the understanding of of intersectionality um, and help us specifically think about the way that uh, Black women, you know, are are moved through this world and are subjected to violence, not just on the basis of their gender, but also on the basis of, of their racial identity or the way that they're racialized by society. Um, you know, and, and now we have words like uh, misogynoir um, or, you know, we have, trans activists who um, give us language to understand the experience of um you know like a, a racialized you know femme presenting person but whose you know gender identity um maybe isn't in alignment with how you know the gender they were assigned at birth and we get like trans massage noir um, and we can understand that um well you know i don't we're not in a race to the bottom to you know argue who is um being hurt or disadvantaged the most in, in any individual moment although we know that you know transracialized folks are um disproportionately impacted by things like sexual violence and you know further uh harms to, to their person we know that statistically um but you know, the, we want to recognize all all harms and all forms of sexual harassment, regardless of your identity. Like they have an impact. Um, but the the way that this violence is is taking shape, or or the aspects of ourself um, that are under attack when somebody's being subjected to something like sexual harassment, is different based on the identities that we hold, right? So, racism, cis heterosexism, ableism, sizeism all of these, um, you know, attitudes and, and beliefs that fundamentally deny people their their humanity, they intersect with, with that experience or in that experience of sexual harassment. And so, you know, for me, as like a white, cis, queer woman, um, sexual harassment that's directed at me, um, you know, might attack and, and likely attacks my my femme-presenting female identity. Um, and then, That's probably about it, right? Like, I I probably don't have to think about my racial identity. Um, I maybe don't read as as queer. And so maybe that's, you know, not something that's coming up and I have to think about. Um, And so, you know, the the parts of me that are under attack are maybe a little less or the way that I can understand it is, uh, you know, about a part of my identity, but not, um, you know, not as multifaceted as you know sexual harassment that might be aimed at somebody who is is racialized and, and queer and trans um, or experiencing a disability um, and the more parts of us I think that are under attack um, the more I think sort of like fundamental that that attack on our being can feel and, and you know I think the um, greater the likelihood that society maybe doesn't read those forms of violence as violence, because um, that's how systemic oppression operates, right? It's sort of invisibilized or um, it is silenced or minimized by those who hold power. Um, and so we, in a, in a setting, might be more able to read violence that's inflicted on, on a body like mine, um, which holds a lot of privileges. Uh, then, you know, we read the violence that's inflicted on on bodies that are different and have been systemically disenfranchised or disempowered or marginalized. Um, and so I think um, understanding the sort of subjective nature of um, sexual harassment and, and how it intersects with somebody's various identities um, is really key and, and should be part of any good anti sexual violence um training you know uh that that analysis is really key so that um we're not just responding to the harassment that's like very easily readable right because then we're not protecting or supporting um those most vulnerable in our community and and that systemic nature of of the violence is able to continue
1: and what about bystanders in a library If they see something happening that they know is wrong and and they want to to step in, what what advice would you give them on how to do that safely?
2: Yeah, I think um, the the concept of bystander intervention is definitely an important one. I think it's getting us a little further down that road to Thinking about who's who's responsible for sexual violence, which I think is still fundamentally the the people who um, are engaging in that sort of violence. Um, but you know, it's it's better than responsibilizing the the folks who are being subjected to that that violence themselves. Um, and so I think bystanders do play an important role in, like I said, establishing. And asserting those those values in our communities um, that are that are so important, um, and in particular, um, you know, not allowing sexual violence to operate in silence and and sort of thrive um, in in that environment. And so I think we often talk about um, bystander intervention as sort of disrupting that. Uh, narrative of sexual violence that you know it just happens and we accept it and it's okay it's not a big deal um it says no actually that that is a big deal and that's not what we want our communities uh to be like and, and we do care and we want to you know think about ways to to support um, this and both not happening and, and addressing it when it, it does happen um so like i mentioned before i think um there are a lot of different interventions um that somebody can use when they see sexual harassment happening around them. Um, you know, they you can sort of directly intervene um, if that is something that feels safe and there's a power imbalance, and um, you know we don't feel like there's a chance we'll, we'll escalate the situation. Um, and so that might involve like saying hey that's not okay That's not how we treat people here please stop or I'm gonna to have to ask you to leave um, there's a lot of really great um, sort of like non-violent communication de-escalation uh, skills um, that I think can help folks understand how to um, both address something directly but without escalating this situation um, often involves like so simply describing what you're seeing, explain what you want to see happen instead. Kind of state the reason why this is important uh, to the space, and then you know any sort of consequences, good good or bad, um, that you know might result if the person doesn't change their behavior. Um, and that's a good way, I think, to be really gently assertive and and also um, not create a lot of room for for further violence. Um, and then you know when that doesn't feel possible. I think it is um, totally okay to like create a, an excuse to draw the person who, who's being subjected to the violence out of that situation or you know distract everyone with with a sort of joke to sort of de-escalate and, and create a little bit of breathing room. Um you know, we can delegate the situation to somebody who has more power than us in a in situation or who's better equipped to to handle it. Um and, and even just checking in on folks after the fact So delaying our response, I think is also, um, you know, can be an important tactic. I think sometimes we feel like, oh, I didn't interrupt it when it was happening. So what's the use? But I think it signals to whoever we're engaging that like, that wasn't okay. I noticed it too, you're not alone. And, you know, what can we do now to make sure that you're feeling okay? Um, so I, I think the important thing, no matter what, skill we sort of choose is that um, bystanders recognize that they do have a, a role to play in preventing sexual violence in our community when we talk about the bystander effect, right? The the uh, understanding of that is that the way uh, responsibility is sort of, um, you know, diffused within a crowd or a group of people, right? We think, well, no one else is doing anything. I don't need to do anything. Um, it's not my responsibility. Maybe somebody else will jump in and bystander intervention or talking about being an active bystander flips that notion on its head, right, and says that um, actually, you know, the, everyone in that group of people has a responsibility to try and address the situation in some way. Um, and we can't just sort of sink into the crowd and, and hope that somebody else will, will do or say something Um, because we all have a responsibility to to create communities that are free of sexual violence. So, yeah, I think I would want bystanders to um, recognize and and feel that responsibility to each other. And I think that's part of of shifting our values to uh, ones that are more caring and and supportive uh, overall.
1: Uh, Is there anything uh, else you'd like to add?
2: The only the only other thing I would want to add is that um, for so long I think we've relied on um, you know systems uh, like a you know criminal legal system or policing and surveillance to sort of provide us with with safety and I think you know we see in in situations like you know patron perpetrated sexual harassment that those um, those mechanisms don't really provide us with the the real tangible safety or um, you know that safety comes at the the cost of um, somebody else's safety and, and well-being. Uh, and so we really need different ways of um, you know intervening and, and practicing accountability both you know, personally and interpersonally and, and structurally um, you know and, and even when we're talking about sexual harassment um at a, at a larger level it's it's not even classified as um you know a criminal offense it's a human rights um, violation and and so our mechanisms there and how we respond are even more limited in lots of ways and I think that just shows the sort of shortcomings of um you know these, uh often very retributive ways of of dealing with um violence in our communities and so i do think that um bystander intervention is is part of of moving that narrative but also um like i said before we all need to to think about um the role that that i have to play in, in making my community safer overall right i think often for me um living in the like Macaulay area of, of Edmonton and, and seeing the effects of you know houselessness and um, you know a lack of of social supports that are accessible and, and really meet the needs of people. Um, what what has been helpful for me instead of seeing violence everywhere is is noticing the ways that people's needs aren't being met and thinking about how can we better meet people's needs, right? So that um, sort of violence or or aggression that often comes from being denied your humanity isn't even part of the equation, right? Um, And that's not to say, you know, that's where all violence is coming from or that, uh, you know, to excuse folks who are like sexually harassing somebody else. Um, But I, I think, you know, there are a lot of, of needs of folks that aren't being met or being ignored or denied, um, and you know even at a more theoretical level, um, you know how do we deny a, a lot of people's humanity um, based on their identity or deny them access to things like empathy or um, care from from an early age based on their their gender identity um, and, and things like that? I think create. Um, the, the conditions for violence to occur in the first place. And so we need to have more conversations a- about that. Um, and I think do a lot of internal work to, to shift our culture more generally, um, because otherwise what we're looking at, I think are really like Band-Aid solutions. Um, and I think what we all want are, are communities free of sexual violence. and um, So we all have a role to play in, in getting there together.
0: That's been our episode for this month. Given the typical library wheelhouse, we asked Sam for some book recommendations to refer to those looking to learn more about these topics. She shared these resources to get us started. Asking For It, The Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It by Kate Harding. Learning Good Consent, On Healthy Relationships and Survivor Support by Cindy Crabb. Color of Violence, The Insight Anthology, edited by the organization Incite Women of Color Against Violence. Queering Sexual Violence, Voices from Within the Anti-Violence Movement by Jennifer Patterson. And finally, though it may not be available at your local library, depending on how broad and or cool its collection is, the zine What About the Rapists by Miriam Kaba and Eva Nageo. Both the resources listed earlier, along with these recommendations, will be posted in our show notes. To close out this month, I'd like to thank our interviewers, Maya, Alessa, and Paula, and interviewees, Dr. Allard and Oliphant, and Sam Pearson. As the weather turns, I hope you get a chance to take it in this weekend. Take care of yourself, and as always, don't forget to check it out. This episode of Shout for Libraries was produced by Dan Hackborn, Paula Kerman, and me, Timothy Arthur. Our theme music is Beanbag Fight by Scanglobe. Thanks for listening.